Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, my name is Matt Rodbard, and I'm the author of Food IQ with my buddy, Chef Daniel Holzman. As the founder and editor of the James Beard award-winning food magazine, Taste, you are a confident home cook and tireless asker of questions about food and cooking. Your co-author, Chef Daniel Holzman, is a professional chef, co-founder of The Meatball Shop, which I love, and he started at La Bernadette at the age of 15, which is a whole other podcast episode in itself. Uh-huh. He's also a cookbook author and dedicated home cook. How did you two become friends? Susie, it's so great to be on your show. I'm a big fan of it, and and I, I think Daniel and I met when I was was writing about the meatball shop. I was in fact there on his first night of service. And I was a journalist covering, you know, the New York City restaurant scene. And I met this guy at the time who was just full of life and energy and not like not one of those arrogant chef guys. He was so down to earth. And we like clicked right away when I was interviewing him for that first story. Uh, And fast forward a decade and we've been writing together pretty much ever since, you know, we've been friends since that moment, but we've been writing together. We wrote columns for Savour and for Taste and we are a creative partnership and a creative team. And, And I have to say, it's been one of the most delightful collaborations in my career. So what's one thing that you learned from him? In the book, we're writing about all sorts of opportunities to go into more adventurous cooking territories. And if for whatever reason you've faced a bump along the road, um, your guests are not going to know that you are even ditching an entire course. I took that really to heart when I when I started writing with him um, a decade ago and in on Food IQ because, you know, I was testing these recipes and I'd come across um, a dish that just wasn't working for me. And I just, I kind of scrapped it. Uh, and I felt that's that cosign that that like, OK, to, to pitch a dish really resonated with me. So Food IQ is inspired by your constant conversations about food, and it tackles some of the most discussed, though rarely clarified Mm. questions about home cooking Mm. and food culture today. It teaches cooking fundamentals, imparts little-known culinary trivia, and reveals everything we wanted to know about salting meat, cooking in a microwave, making great pizza at home, and acknowledging the global pancake power rankings. Okay, <laughs> what is the global pancake power <laughs> rankings? I'm glad you asked asked about the pancakes. Um, so the book is formatted. Um, we ask a question. So on this this question in particular, how do I learn to love the pancake as an adult? So we are we go into this this story, and the book is full of narrative. You know, we we feel we're in a really unique place here with Food IQ, where we're we're writing through it. Like there's a lot of personal memoir in there in a in a fun way. There's a lot of reporting. We have a lot of friends of Food IQ that we've interviewed for expert advice. But in this one in particular, we talk about Daniel's time working um, at a restaurant in Santa Monica or actually Venice, California, where he, I think, served what I would say is one of the most famous pancakes of Southern California in uh, in the history of pancakery. And so we channeled that recipe, which is a multi-grain pancake with lots of texture and 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 lots of, like I would say, grooves in the, in the pancake once you've made it. And then, of course, we to the pancake power ranking, which is our riff on what, why we love the pancakes so much. So what's number five? Okay. So 
Let's start with number five. And, you know, we had a lot of debate in this book and like, we're not, you know, there's lots of different pancakes that we're going to overlook here. And there's no, I, I feel like you can't really go wrong with a pancake, but number five is the Okonomiyaki, a native of uh, Hiroshima and Osaka. Uh, if you've been to an Izakaya restaurant, uh, you, you've probably had this. Um, and it's a pancake filled with uh, grated yam and types of seafood and made with dashi, which is that wonderful Japanese stock that kind of informs all the cooking of Japan. So that's number five, okonomiyaki. And then number four. Okay, so Yorkshire pudding, we think is actually a pancake. Really? Uh, yeah, because it, it, it it's kind of cooked in a similar way um, and it uses hot beef tallow um, and it's usually accompanying steak and, and or meat and potatoes. And we just feel like that that's a Daniel Holzman one, to be honest. I was like, yo, I'm not so down with Yorkshire pudding. But when you're the co-author of a book, you sometimes don't get to, you know, agree on everything. So number three. So three is more, one of my real, real uh, picks. And Daniel agrees, of course, which is Korean Pajin which is um, the, the, the Korean pancake that you're going to get at, at a lot of Korean restaurants. And I wrote a book about Korean food with my buddy, Duki Hong, called Koreatown. And we're working on the next book called Korea World. So we're, we're, I'm still very much engaged in loving Korean food and culture. It's just the story of, an, of a lifetime. Um, that's an aside. <laughs> the Korean pajun is a wonderful pancake made of kimchi, seafood like squid or octopus, scallions and really you're frying it really crisp and you're getting at the center of a table and it's being dipped in a soy sauce based sauce uh it's so good i love that one i've only had it with scallions but i'm dying yeah. to try the kimchi seafood or a beef one you know, kimchi pajan is more common, the one with scallions and just kimchi that's vegetarian, but amul pajan is the one with uh with squid and seafood. And I love I love both of them. Yeah, they're great. Next is number two. You know, we just we were in the city last week. We went to Bubby's and we had um we had some buttermilk pancakes and we so we can't ignore the the beauty of the buttermilk pancake but bubby's was pretty good i, I gotta say um maybe slipping a bit though we we have to say we might have had a little gripe with their sourdough pancake but that's an aside uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but our number two is actually a blueberry pancake we both feel that blueberries in pancakes is really the best option not just for kids, but adults. And as I said, this is how you learn to love pancakes as an adult. And really, you got to put Grey B Vermont maple syrup on those blueberry pancakes. That's the key. Okay, drum roll. What is number one? <laughs> well, this was a no-brainer for us. Uh, we are two Ashkenazi Jews, um, and we write a lot about our, our background there. And like the latka, come on, yeah, give it up for the latka, not just for Hanukkah. And latka, for those who don't know, is a potato pancake served at Hanukkah, but oftentimes served at Jewish delis around the country. And we love the latka because you can really mess up a latka when you don't know what you're doing. But when you actually nail it, which is typically getting out most of the water through squeeze, squeezing the water out and seizing it properly and then frying it to a golden crisp. So it's similar to like a McDonald's hash brown. Those latkes to me are really the, the epitome of pancakery in the world and wrap up our global pancake power ranking. So tell me, what are Foodies 2.0? Love that you ask this because I think your listeners um, are squarely in the center of Foodie 2.0. You know, we when we started writing Food IQ, we, we decided that we wanted to really acknowledge our reader. 
Uh, we weren't writing this for literally everyone in the world. I, I think in publishing, that's kind of a, a, a mistake. But we realized soon that there is this massive underserved audience of cookbook buyer uh, and, and food lover out there. And we call them the foodie 2.0. And we're reclaiming the term foodie because the foodie for years was associated with, um, I think it's, it was a little corny, like just being frank, the term was corny, but it was specific. It said what it said. It said that you were into food beyond just making food for nourishment. So what we're saying is the foodie 2.0 is this individual who obviously knows something about cooking, knows how to slice a scallion, understands that beef bourguignon is made with wine, like understands fundamentals of cooking, but maybe, or, or obviously not, maybe obviously has more to learn because that's literally everybody, including myself. So we acknowledge this in the intro and we, we actually celebrate it because the foodie 2.0 is somebody we, we believe is the future of food. It's not like talking down to an audience and saying, here's all the pantry items that you need. It drives me a little crazy when you see these cookbooks that have like this very rote pantry section, like, like assuming that we don't know how to buy chili powder, to be honest. Like I, I'm, I'm sure there are some out there who don't know how to buy chili powder, but that's kind of, to be honest, that pantry section is, it's part of the problem. Um, and we address this and say like, basically these are a hundred food questions that we know are at the tip of your tongue. Um, you may have been wondering why, like how, what's the difference between the three types of onions that are commonly used white, yellow, and red, for example. But also let me add, it's not just about cooking. And we've realized this through these questions that food and foodie 2.0 is an individual who wants to talk about food, who enjoys reading food copy from the New York Times or Serious Eats or Taste, and just has this real engagement with food as entertainment. And so we are really, we're championing this person, this individual. We know there are a lot of you out there and this book is really serving you as a reader and really understanding that you have a, you know a lot, Mr. and Mrs. Foodie 2.0, but maybe you need a little bit of help in certain categories. I was going to ask you about the onions because I use onions interchangeably. Is that wrong? Not at all. I mean, we're, we're not really sticklers about like you have to use the white onion or you have to use the red onion. But to be honest, the red onion is used a lot for, you know, the color. You're using it for its actual color and it's being used in um, in more of a decorative scenario. While white onions are slightly milder and you're, you're seeing them more in Latin American cuisine, like guacamole, for example, you'd probably put a white onion in there because it's a little more mild and you're eating them raw or salting them lightly. So those are the, the raw ones. And then the Spanish yellow onion really is the workhorse onion and is the one you're cooking, you're putting in sofrito, and you're putting, you know, in, in, in as the base for a lot of cooking. Um, they're the most astringent of the three. Um, but yes, like if it calls for red, you can certainly use yellow, but you're not going to get that pop of color that I think the, the, the red will give you. So this book isn't just about you and Daniel kicking around ideas about food. You enlist some big names in the culinary game to contribute to Food IQ. Talk a little bit about the friends of Food IQ and who are some of the notable people? Absolutely. It was important for Daniel and I when writing Food IQ to, to acknowledge that we obviously don't know a lot. And we, we certainly don't know a lot about the multicultural nature of food. We, uh, we are two white guys writing about food and we really 
um, have blind spots and we have spots that we just don't really know about. We couldn't just say, um, here's the history of adobo without interviewing Lagaya Michan, who's wrote a book about Filipino cuisine and is also a New York Times columnist. And so we we got in touch with Lagaya and had a great interview about the history of adobo. We have over 20 of these interviews in the book. It's all over the place in food. It's chefs like Marwan Irani, who is a friend of mine and runs these amazing restaurants in Asheville and Atlanta called Chaipani. And he told us a lot about curry powder and how curry powder as a as a thing in India is maybe not what you'd expect. Um, we talked to Helen Rosner, a great writer from The New Yorker, about MSG. And we write a lot about MSG in the book and, and we cook a lot with MSG. And we feel MSG is something to, to really celebrate in food um, if you know what you're doing with it. So lots of fun people we got in touch with. Do you think the day has passed of the white guy writing a book about, quote, foreign cuisine? Ooh, great question. Um, definitely not what I'm saying, to be honest. Um, I feel as a white guy who's written about Korean food for a long time, it's not about the gaze and it's not about the the author's uh, point of view per se. It's about the author acknowledging their point of view, is acknowledging that there are blind spots. But to be honest, um, I'm not going to say that white guys need more books. Like That's not what I'm saying because it tastes... And at Penguin Random House, where I work, we certainly are celebrating and taste launched in 2017. And we've always been celebrating multicultural nature and trying to get writers from all backgrounds onto the pages and acknowledging that there is certainly a need for more in book publishing. Um, So I wouldn't say it's like the end, because I think that's unfair to a lot of folks, but it's acknowledging our blind spots, but also acknowledging that publishing needs to step up and, and, and offer more books uh, to all folks. And, and I think I, what I've seen in the past couple of years, and there's a real movement and I'm, I'm pleased. I mean, certainly there's a ways to go, but I'm pleased. I love that you and Daniel explain the misunderstood and uncover the unappreciated. So first, what is the difference between Parmigiano Reggiano and Pecorino Romano? I never know. I mean, Pecorino is sheep and Parmigiano Reggiano is cows. And if you go to the Northern region, um, in Emilia Romagna, that's where Parmesan Reggiano is made. Uh, and you can see, you can look around and see there's a lot of cows there. You grew up in Kansas. I grew up in West Michigan. It looks just like that. I guarantee it. it, it I've, I love that region of Italy. It's very, it's agricultural driven. Um, but Pecorino is is more uh, a sheep product, uh, sheep cheese. Um, and certainly a little more uh, hangier on the palate. Um, some would say that Pecorino is overused and and I'm not going to go down that road to say what or what isn't overused, but a lot of, a lot of recipes call for Pecorino. And in fact, Parmesan Reggiano can be substituted. So, um, the recipe that accompanies this is one I made over the weekend and it's called baby shells in Parmesan broth on page 29. And in this recipe, you say we can buy Parm rinds from our cheesemonger. And I think that's so smart. Yeah, for sure. I think Whole Foods um, always has a little parm rind stash. Um, you can also go to your cheese shop and ask for rinds. And using rinds in a broth, I mean, first off, it's really fun. Like you're you're using up all of the cheese and you're getting this really deep flavor. Yeah. Thank you for making it and, and taking the time. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So one question I've been pondering a lot lately is should I buy a walk? What's the answer? <laughs> I love my walk. I made, I used it last night 
to be honest, I made a halibut with the coconut uh, cream um, and I used it. I used it for all sorts of cooking. It's a great vessel. Yes, you should buy a wok, Susie. That is the answer. It's just one of those things that is just so useful. Use it for high temperature cooking. I love the way it heats up around the edges at a higher temperature and the center, you can use it for lower temperature. But um, I enjoy cooking um, all sorts of Asian cuisine, uh, stir fries from China, uh, fried rice, kimchi bokumbap from Korea. And I use my wok all the time. Uh, it's just great. And we have a we have a cool recipe for green beans. And I feel like um, recipes um, in the wok um, are fast. I mean, most of the time you're, you're taking is, uh, is, is to prep uh, and then you're quickly stir frying. So I, I, like, I like it. It's just fun to cook with. So in the book, the answer to this question that I found so interesting was, are organic fruits and vegetables worth the extra money. The, the main question with organic is, do I need to be beholden to that, that sticker of organic? And what we write about in the, in the book is that there is a lot of agriculture out there that just can't swing the organic certification. Um, and so to acknowledge that and realize that there's thousands of dollars required for small farms to become organic certified, and many can't swing that. So if you uh, are going to your farmer's market and it doesn't have organic certification, um, or there isn't like a sign that says all organic, it might not be because it's not organic. It just might be they, they can't pay the fee. And so to us, we think organic is important to acknowledge. Um, but when we're we're talking about vegetables and fruit and produce, it's not an all or nothing kind of question and answer. That makes sense. Now to my segment called Dream Dinner Party, where I ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why. And for this segment, it can only be one person. I'm going to say that Anthony Bourdain is who I want to talk to um, because I I just saw the documentary recently and I had a relationship with Anthony Bourdain for years and, and he, you know, he blurbed our first book, uh, Koreatown. And, um, I worked at 0.0 and, and, you know, saw him in the room a lot. And, and really, I just have to say, I have a lot of questions for Anthony Bourdain, um, about, you know, his final years, but also just about why he, he did what he did in terms of his writing style. I'm not talking about the end. I'm talking about just the way he, um, created his, uh, his TV show, which I think is still one of the greatest works of television, um, ever. And we need to acknowledge that time and again. So I think a meal with Anthony Bourdain, um, I know a big lover of Korean food. So uh, over a bowl of gum jatang, that would be my dream meal. And I think we'd have a really fun time and have a great conversation. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Absolutely. So foodiq.co is a great place to check out the book, uh, where to buy it, some sample questions and answers and recipes. I'm at Matt Rodbard on Instagram and Twitter, and that's where you can find me. And Dan Holzman's at Chef Dan, Daniel Holzman uh, on Twitter as well. To purchase Food IQ and support the podcast, head on over to cookerybythebook.com. And thanks, Matt, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you for having me, Susie. It was a real pleasure. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.